0: Hey, welcome to Progressions, Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 57. So welcome to 2022. Hopefully you're feeling energized and you set some goals for yourself this year. I do know that there is a lot of stuff going on in the world today that probably makes it hard to feel like a new year can still be a reset. But I encourage you to try to ignore all of that noise and avoid taking a new year, same me, same world approach. So since at the top of every year, Everybody's always super hyped about their resolutions, goals, and habits. I figured, let's do a quick rant on goals. And for this one, I like sports as the example. So how many of you have played sports? Raise your hand. Hopefully you're not in public if you did actually raise your hand. If so, I'm sorry about that. Okay, so for those of you who did play sports, or have at least watched a lot of sports, you can relate to this. It's midseason. Your team has been great this year, and you're sitting towards the top of your conference, if not in first place. You walk onto the field or the court or whatever to face off with the absolute worst team in the league. Not a single win to their name. What happens? You are blown out of the water. You play the worst game of the season and you lose to a team that you should have stomped on. Or maybe you're on the other side. Maybe you were on a team that was outskilled in every possible way. Stepping on the field was a chance to upset a favorite opponent and to prove yourself. You'd play that game as hard as you possibly could because this was your chance. See, there's a weird psychological effect that happens in sports. Teams can, at times, seem to play to the level of their competition. A top-ranked team can show up with a chip on their shoulder and not play their best, while their underdog opponent can show up ready to sacrifice everything to get a win. And they just might. It's happened plenty of times. Roger Federer lost the U.S. Open to a 20-year-old who would go on to never win another major trophy. Mike Tyson has been knocked out. And a U.S. Olympic hockey team made up of college kids beat the dominant and highly favored Soviet Union team for gold. So enough about sports. This is a music podcast, right? I think you get the idea. People tend to play to the level of their competition. And not playing to the level of your competition requires a level of mental fortitude that's found in the greatest athletes, thinkers, creators, business people, and leaders of all time. Think of the legends in pretty much any industry or field. They were always going beyond the rest of their peers. Status quo was never enough for them. So let's bring it back to goals to close it out. What kind of goals do you have set for yourself right now? Are you playing against a top-tier opponent, or are you expecting to get an easy win? Remember, you're likely to play to the level of those goals. If you've got crazy moonshot ideas, you've got no choice but to go big or go home. If you're playing small and looking for easy wins, then you're going to win small when you even manage to win. The harder the challenge, the more humans are driven to go for it. So if you haven't set any goals or resolutions for the new year, I urge you to pick a couple hard ones. Compete up to the level of your goals. Don't set goals at the level of your abilities. Today's guest is producer and mixer Carl Bonner. Carl has mastered the art of working remotely, having worked with artists in 16 countries, all from not Los Angeles, not New York, and not Nashville, but from Amish country Pennsylvania. His credits include artists such as Violet, St. Lucia, Joy Wave, and Hippocampus. Prior to working full-time behind the glass, Carl toured all over North America and the UK playing drums for the band Cheerleader, sharing stages with artists such as Walk the Moon, X Ambassadors, and Charlie XCX. In addition to all of that, he coaches fellow engineers and producers on how to build client rosters full of music they are passionate about, and he's developing a course to do the same. He's a self-proclaimed alt-pop nerd, which I'm all down for. So welcome to the show, Carl Bonner. Hey, Carl, how's it going?
1: It's going uh, pretty fantastically now that I'm I'm here on this lovely podcast. <laughs>
0: well, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, we connected after you were on Ben Wallach's show, Secret Sonics, and I was like, dude, I just
1: I just want to hang out with this guy. So I, I hitch up on Instagram and begged you to come on here. And, and now we're here. I wouldn't call it begging. I would say, I think you messaged me. And I was like, ah, ah, yes, please, let's talk. Let's hang out. Because I was, you know, a fan of you before that anyway. So I was just like, ha, 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 ha. I can't wait.
0: Had you heard the show before?
1: I forget where. Because it was one of those that I listened to it. But before I knew who you were, I think even before I had met Ben, possibly. Oh, that's funny. That's awesome. And it was just maybe just, you know, going down the music business podcast rabbit hole at some point
0: i just feel good to know that some algorithm somewhere pushed it in front of you
1: (laughs) something worked it was uh you know tucked between a bunch of like cubanon podcasts and then it was you
0: (laughs) interesting it's very uh it's unexpected but i'll I'll take what i can get
1: l m n o p q i mean like alphabetically it makes sense i'm joking everybody (laughs) i'm sorry you can edit this out if you want to (laughs) uh
0: Straight to the tangents and the uh, and the jokes on this episode. Yep. So for our audience, we're recording this in December. I don't know, it's going to be January or February release. So if we're talking about Christmas here, that's why. How's the end of the year for you? Is it like, I feel like music industry kind of like really grinds to a stop after Thanksgiving. Are you getting to chill out a bit or are you just working your ass off?
1: Not really getting a chance to relax. It's definitely a little bit slower than it was earlier. You know, I've been... Full-time since 2009, and yeah, like, summers are crazy, and winters are generally a little bit more dead. The past couple years, the winter's been pretty steady for me, though, luckily. That's good. Yeah, and this year's been about the same. Nice. You know, as there's a a lot of, like, ongoing projects that I have where there may not be as many releases coming out right now, but there's a lot of people that are still, like, maybe wrapping up an EP that they're planning on releasing in, you know, March. Cool.
0: My after Thanksgiving experience over the last 15 years has always been like, oh man, I did nothing. Or, oh shit, is it Christmas? Am I supposed to go to the airport? Yeah. <laughs> like It's just like, it's either feast or famine after Thanksgiving in this business. So for anybody that is kind of slow and it's your first year in this business, it's cool. Don't worry about it. Yeah. It's Christmas time.
1: It's to be expected. Yeah. To be expected. But uh, on the internet, it looks like you're building a studio. How How close are we? Very close. Uh, functionally, perfect. very close. Aesthetically, not quite there yet. I uh, was talking before the podcast. I've had an issue trying to find the fabric that I'm looking for, and it shouldn't be hard, but it's super hard.
0: I've got some fabric if you want it. I've got
1: leftovers. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that later. No, but I just, <laughs> other than that, I mean, tomorrow, actually, some friends are coming over with me to build the last of the panels and start hanging up all the treatment. And then the acousticians coming on Monday to make some last minute adjustments and run some sweeps and all of that. So I'll be functionally ready to go by Monday evening, but the sound panels are just going to all be a a total mix and match of random fabrics that I, that they were currently in and not the nice, sleek, modern, it's going to look like a, you know, I rated a Goodwill for fabric. <laughs> and I'm excited to have it be a little bit more elegant in the next coming weeks. Amazing.
0: I feel the pain of like aesthetically not being done. I don't know. I think you can see the boxes behind me. I'm like, I have no furniture in here, but I just keep working. Mm-hmm. So I'm with you. I'm right there.
1: Is it on your property or is it is it a separate space? Is it in your house? Separate space, uh separate space, but it's literally a two minute drive from my house. So awesome. Yeah. Third floor in this big old, I don't know, hundred- 150 year old warehouse. Cool. And yeah, it's gonna be sweet. And I'm going from my, you know, my home studio right now has been basically like a, I don't know, I think it's like it might be like nine by eleven spare bedroom. Oh yeah. It's tiny. I have like an angled ceiling like from where the the roof line is. So it's not a not a huge room. Oh, that's convenient. It's nice for my my clouds, actually. But moving into a space that is you know, just the control room is, I think it's 17 by 13, something like that. So like quite a bit bigger than this with like 11 or 12 foot ceilings. And then the live room is I think 17 by 28. Cool. So I'm going from this little tiny, you know, the smallest bedroom in the house to a proper space, which will be nice.
0: Awesome. That'll be great. Yeah. The the room that I'm in right now is like 17 by 13 control room. I I have no live room though. I, I miss it, but... I don't know, I just, I don't do enough recording to
1: want to pay for that extra space, you know, yeah. so. Honestly, the only reason that I'm going to have it is I'm going to be splitting the space with a friend of mine mm. who uses it on the hours that I don't work anyway, like, it's nights and weekends, and it's really just to, like, have a space for his band to rehearse and to keep a lot of his amps and things. So I don't need the live room, but I'm going to have it, which is nice. So I'll have my drum kit set up and mic'd, you know, 24-7. So what I'm doing drum sessions even if it's just like oh recording some live hi-hats yeah for a track rather than like full drum kit i can just you know walk into the room and and do that so that's awesome it's a little bit overkill for the mixing that i'm doing but having it there is gonna be really nice just if and when i need it
0: no yeah from our conversations before you came on the show in the you know instagram messages like i feel like you're like a workflow like efficiency person like having everything plugged in, whether you use it once a year or not, is like going to make such a difference on just the vibe. Yeah. Especially if there's a person over and they're like, oh shit. Like my my buddy and I used to have, uh, we had a similar studio, uh, my friend Corey Britt's production partner, and we would do, everything was always set up. And like when an artist came over to write, like sometimes they would just like get on Instagram and Corey would go play drums. All I had to do was import the tracks, hit record. He'd grab a guitar, play a guitar while he was out there. He'd come back in like, you know, the artist would look up from their phone and be like, did you guys just do
1: drums and two guitars? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Next, <laughs> like, let's yeah. keep going. <laughs> yep, that's awesome. Yeah, and I think I'm having a second rig set up in the live room as well, so that way I have, have a couple of assistants. They've all been remote up until now, and one of them is going to be uh, also in the space with me, which is going to be really nice to have somebody in person again. Cool. But then there could be somebody working in the other room. The ISO booth is inside the live room. So somebody else could be in there doing vocal tracking sessions while I'm in the control room mixing and we wouldn't interfere with each other. So it's going to be a nice place to be able to multitask as well. So when I have clients that I very rarely have local clients, but when I do or when my friends do, they can come over and they can just work in the other room and I can wave to them through the window and (laughs) we all do our own thing. Awesome.
0: Amazing. Well, we should do uh, the podcast like the normal got to start with your story so now we'll start the podcast everybody the podcast has now started that was just the ad
1: yeah that was just the uh,
0: <laughs> exactly
1: happy honda days everybody yeah
0: <laughs> how did you uh how'd you get into music how'd you end up playing in bands and and now you know moving into a, a dope studio
1: oh had a very meandering career <laughs> a very meandering uh musical life really started playing piano when i was like five and hated it I learned really quickly, but didn't actually put any work in, which sounds like a lot of musicians I know. Started playing clarinet in elementary school and then switched to trumpet in high school and just kind of learned a lot of that world, you know, like a lot of just, you know, the public school band system music. Started teaching myself drums a little tiny bit, just with some friends that were in the neighborhood and played guitar a little bit, played bass a little bit, all just self-taught and not very good. And when I went to college, I actually went to college for audio technology, like recording technology with a focus on trumpet. And, you know, that was not really what I wanted to do. I didn't really want to be a professional trumpet player, but I, music was the only thing that I was even remotely good at. And it's like, okay, well, I guess I'll give this a shot and kind of figure it out. And I went to start college, you know, with a recording degree. And I had really no recording experience. Like, it's not like I had been learning a lot on my own in high school or like in bands that recorded a bunch. Like, it was just like, that sounds cool. And I know that's like the story for a lot of people that generally end up, you know, failing out of recording <laughs> programs like <laughs> three weeks in. So I think I might I might be the exception to that. So I was about to go to school for it. And like two weeks before band camp, because I was a marching band kid, I get a call from the director saying, hey, there are 22 players or 23 players in the trumpet line, but there's only three people in the pit percussion section. Like, Would you be interested in playing in that, like playing timpani and marimba and glockenspiel and, and all that? And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? That, that'll be fun. And by the end of like the second or third day, I was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Like, I want to be a percussionist. Like, I don't... I was already on the fence about trumpet. It was just like what I did well. And... I was determined and I couldn't just, you know, sign papers and then suddenly become a percussion major. I had to audition into the college. So I had some friends that were also freshmen with me that were percussion majors and they basically helped to train me to prepare for an audition. And I just spent no time practicing my trumpet at all, like my first semester as a trumpet major and I spent like five or six hours a day in the practice room, like teaching myself and like learning, getting help from some friends too, but like learning how to play snare drum, timpani, marimba. Yeah. And that December I auditioned into the college and got in. So that kind of set the, the standard that I set for myself as far as my work ethic and my determination because I realized, oh, if I just apply myself, like, I can do kind of crazy things. That's impressive. That's awesome. Yeah, thanks. And that's kind of been a, a a unifying theme throughout my career. So even though, like I said, I had quite a meandering path, it was me kind of going after things that were exciting and that I knew I could learn a lot from and that I was determined to achieve even if it was unlikely to do it. So first semester, I was a recording arts major with a trumpet focus. It's kind of like doing both. Then the second semester, it was, you know, recording arts and percussion. And I started getting asked to play drums and percussion parts in a bunch of the class recording projects. And I started becoming really fascinated with that side of it and like being a performer in the studio. So then third semester, I ended up adding performance as a double major. So I was now recording arts and performance um, with a percussion focus. And I had this realization that maybe at this stage trying to focus on recording arts and also f- focusing on performance is kind of like trying to be a doctor and a lawyer at the same time or like trying to go to like law school and med school and you're just like I'm going to be half ass at best if I don't really apply myself like I'm not going to get to the level that I really want to see myself achieve. Yeah, they both require a, s- a lot of work. A lot of work, and, yes. And
0: just different enough that you're not going to get a lot of overlap benefits.
1: Yeah. Now down the road like now my performance experience and my recording experience, they inform each other all the time, constantly. Yeah. But in the beginning, when I was still just trying to figure out what I'm doing, I think I needed a, a stronger foundation before I could start adding, before I could start hanging more ornaments from the Christmas tree, if you want to, you know, tie in the, the holidays. Get our December reference. Got to make as many Christmas references in a podcast that's probably going to come out after Christmas anyway, just to make everybody, you know, reminisce for the, the good couple weeks ago.
0: As soon as Mariah Carey is off the radio, I'm gonna drop this podcast.
1: Th- thank you. That's <laughs> I-, I want I want Mariah Carey's Christmas songs to be the the impetus for all decisions in my <laughs> in my life. Okay, so anyway, so I was uh, I, I kind of realized I couldn't really do both, or I really shouldn't do both if I want to get a-, a solid enough foundation to make any real progress. And I ended up dropping the recording program and I was just a straight performance for the rest of my degree. So my degree is actually in orchestral percussion performance. So the department did not have a drum set teacher at the time. They had a percussionist, like a percussion teacher, who outright refused to teach drum set. <laughs> and he had said many times to many people, and I heard, I heard him say it at least like three or four times, anybody can play drum set, so I don't have to teach you how to play drum set, which is code for, I don't know how to play drum set, so I'm going to pretend that you don't need to. Because I, I didn't fully grasp that until I heard him play at a faculty recital. And he was playing, you know, if you're listening to this, you can't see me do the really exaggerated air quotes, but he was playing jazz drums. Oh, uh, yeah. And you can imagine what that is. And it was awful. And that was when I had this realization of like, oh, he's just a dick. <laughs> That's. <laughs> <laughs> so at the school, we weren't allowed to take any private lessons outside of the school. Oh, really? Yeah. So I, w- I wanted to focus on drum set, but part of the, you know, the terms of, you know, being in, in the department, like we had to take lessons, but they had to be at the school from the professors.
0: What if it was a different instrument? What if you wanted to take piano lessons nope. and you were percussion? I, I, I
1: could take piano lessons from one of the piano professors, oh. but I couldn't do it outside of the school. So I wanted to learn how to play drums, but the only person that could teach it refused to teach it. So, of course, I just went up to New York and just did it anyway. You know, I went to college at Lebanon Valley College. It's uh, also kind of an Amish country here, central Pennsylvania. So, I would just go up to Brooklyn and do, you know, random drum lessons with, you know, the at the time I was really into, like, the New York, like, avant-garde jazz scene. So, like, I went up and did a lesson with Jim Black from, uh, okay, he's he's a beast. He's insane. Uh, Who else? Did a couple lessons with... Ari Honig, who's like a just brilliant, crazy like musical abacus. Oh yeah, calculus crazy, crazy guy. Um, I love his stuff. And also with Mark Giuliana, who is now in Saint Vincent's band, which is like the the coolest thing, but also super weird because he also did David Bowie's Black Star. Yeah, like he played drums on that album too. Talking drummers, I I saw um when I was working at Capitol.
0: I saw Vinny Caluta like warming up and like getting drum sounds while eating a burrito. So he was playing with one hand. And I was just watching while they were getting drum sounds before the session. I was like, he's playing with one hand. And it's better than everybody else that I've seen in the last month. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, these guys
1: are monsters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wonder if the burrito adds that. That's the X factor. Well, maybe. Maybe that's what everybody else is doing wrong. They're not eating burritos while getting drum sounds.
0: It's true. It's true. It sounds different.
1: So, yeah, so I would go up to New York, and I would, you know, take these lessons, and it really just, you know, continued to reinforce that thing of, I don't care how implausible this is, I don't care how difficult it is, if I want to learn something, and if I want to achieve something, I'm just going to do it. I don't care how inconvenient it is. So, graduated from college, well, I started doing, sorry, I started doing, like, paid session stuff even before I was out of college, and... Graduated in 07 and then went full-time in 09, you know, teaching lessons in in between there and had an awful, you know, day job, office job uh, for a little bit. I don't even want to go into that. But once I started going full-time, I was just doing, you know, anything that I could, like whether it was sessions in the studio or a a lot of live gigs and, you know, teaching lessons and really, really a little bit of everything. The full-on musician hustle. Totally, totally. You know, there were times I remember before I joined Cheerleader, there was a, a month that I had gigs with 16 different bands in a month. Damn. Like 16 different, like totally different set lists of different music. And so to me, I think that's something that I, I did out of necessity, but it really trained me to learn quickly, make decisions quickly, and create a good shorthand for me to be able to remember all those songs.
0: Yeah. Uh, do you have any thoughts or tips for players? Because I haven't had a lot of, like, people that spent time in that, like, I just graduated from music school with a performance degree, balancing, grabbing gigs, meeting people, doing lessons. It's, like, kind of what you have to
1: do in the beginning. Do you have any tips for kids? Don't give up. Say yes to everything at that stage. I I, yeah. I will not tell my, you know, adult professional you know students to to do that right now but at that time i think for me what ended up being so important to the growth of my career was the willingness to try things that i wasn't familiar with kind of going back to me you know joining the pit percussion section in the marching band in college yeah you know like that just me being open to open to opportunities that i can learn from now being open to opportunities that I've already done before, and I know it's going to be miserable, and I know I'm going to hate it. That's a different conversation, right? But if right. if it's a style that you don't have a lot of experience with, or a you know even an instrument you don't have a ton of experience with, and you can figure it out, like figure it out, you're going to learn a lot from the people that you work with, from your own your own experience of trudging uphill trying to figure out. Well, how do I play mandolin? I don't. I, I need to. I need to learn how to play mandolin before Saturday. <laughs> you know. <laughs> It's great, and that's so. So that actually is why I joined Cheerleader in the first place. Funny, funny transition there, because yeah, I was just playing gigs and doing a little bit of everything. And most of the gigs that I was playing were there's a lot of blues band gigs, jam band gigs, some singer songwriters, you know, the, the kind of the stuff that that pays some some jazz gigs, but like very rarely. And I never got into like the wedding band gig world, right? So. I never really played pop music. I never never really got into that. Listened to it growing up, like listen to Casey's Top 40 and, you know, grew up on like Backstreet Boys and that kind of stuff. But I never played it as a drummer. And the reason that I even got into cheerleader in the first place was because the manager, like they were already signed and had a manager before I auditioned. um, But the manager responded to a Craigslist ad that I put out looking for drum students. And he messaged me asking if I had any students that would be interested in auditioning and sent me a couple songs. And I was like, well, no, most of my students are 12, but <laughs> I'd like to give it a shot. And I went in and auditioned and got the gig, obviously, but it was a style of music, like the indie pop stuff I had never really done much in before. or like wasn't even really super aware of it, but it was an, a learning experience and it was an audition. And... Worst thing that could happen is I do the audition, I crush the audition and I decide not to take the gig. Yeah. You know, that was kind of like what my mentality was. Like I'm going to go into it doing my best to get the offer and then if I don't like the people or like I don't like their expectations or their you know what whatever it is, um then I can always, you know, I can still say no. But luckily I said yes. And that kind of set me down this new path of the indie pop, alt pop integrating electronics with live instruments kind of world that without me set like, you know, putting out that particular Craigslist ad looking for drum students, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now, which has nothing to do with Craigslist and or drum students. Totally. That's
0: awesome. I was just talking to somebody, uh, not on the podcast, just a, a buddy I hadn't seen in a long time. And, and he said that he'd done a few, uh, he's done a few movies with people that he met on like Craigslist ads like 10 years ago or something like that. And I was like, yeah. Hmm, crazy. Craigslist.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's it's so funny. I, I can really trace back, you know, I can trace back pretty much everything that I do to, like, a handful of, you know, Craigslist interactions that I had back in, like, you know, 2010. Yeah. Well, you know, it, hey, Craigslist has a bad rap.
0: I've never really, I've never looked for gigs on there, really, or posted anything. Maybe I missed out. I missed out on, like, my greatest collaborator somewhere.
1: Yeah, that won't keep you up at night. <laughs> totally it's like oh
0: why didn't i spend more time on craigslist (laughs) if you're enjoying this episode then please consider pulling your phone out tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it obviously it would be huge for me but it could be even more game changing for that person you just never know what can inspire or help someone else out I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. Okay, so, so now you're, you're playing in a signed band. You guys are torn around. You're meeting a lot of people. You're in this new world. A, how was that? Was that just like a crazy
1: life turn for you? And then B, how did it come to closure? Yeah, it was crazy for me because up until then, like music had obviously been all that I had really done in life, but I was always the side sideman, right. you know, and playing with a bunch of different people. And this was the first time where I went from being a, I was still technically like a bit of a mercenary in that in that band, but I was like the drummer for like four years in it. And it was the first time that I had really honed in on being in one particular musical project. Like that just wasn't really my norm at all. My norm was playing with, you know, 10 bands at a time. So it was a crazy experience, you know, getting to tour and, you know, open for some really great acts. And, you know, like we did a a whole U S tour with the wombats who became good friends. And we, you know, played Firefly and we played a sold out show at the Fillmore. Nice. Even like my mom heard us in Walmart, which is like such a stupid thing, but like my mom's 80 and she's not exactly hip to, you know, to pop music. So just the fact that she, <laughs> h- how excited that was for her, like that was like, that was like the holy grail for her was like to hear her son coming through like the little three inch speakers in a Walmart ceiling. That's right. And sorry, quick side note. Like, I feel like that should be one of the, uh, you know, virtual headphone settings, you know, like what does it sound like in uh, a big box store? Yeah. Like a Walmart. Yeah. Like, you know, or like the grocery store speakers, but anyway, we got to have some ambient noise and like a baby crying and like footsteps and stuff. Yeah. And if it's a home Depot, you hear like birds
0: chirping. Yeah, exactly. Does the snare pop when there's people talking? No, I got to turn it up. (laughs) <laughs> oh, my gosh.
1: So, yeah. And, you know, we had a song in a Guitar Hero game. So I got to like play my own song on Guitar Hero against one of my uh, like seven year old, you know, drum students at the time who thought it was like the coolest thing in the world. And he just destroyed me. So, yeah. So we had a, a lot of a lot of great experiences. But I think what the things that happened that really impact my current situation was the fact that when we would be on the road and we had those long, boring drive days through, you know, the Midwest of the U.S., I had a laptop and I started doing remixes just for fun. Like remixes of, like, Friends bands. Sweet. And that's really what kind of kick everything that I do now. Because I had I had, had a, you know, little home studio before that and I had done some recording, but realistically, it was a space that my friends and my projects could come and. Make demos. Like it, as much as I thought it was a real proper studio, looking back, it absolutely wasn't. But it was great for what it was. You know, it was like a nice little rehearsal room that we could record stuff in. So once I started doing the remixes, you know, in the van on those long, boring van drives, that's really what not only kickstarted my fascination with production, but also my real deep dive into the indie pop and alt pop kind of world. Because the very first band that I did a remix for was this band called Wild Party, who I love. And I think the second one I ever did was for Hippocampus, and the third one was for the Wombats. So, like, right away, like, it was just amazing artists giving me files to, like, yeah to to do this. Because they were just, like, you know, the Hippocampus, we met some of the guys at a show when we played in St. Paul because our manager lived in Minneapolis and knew them somehow. And for the Wombats, we were label mates and toured with them, so there were a lot of people that we had met and like gigged with over the years that after we played the show, it'd just be like, Hey, you guys looking for remixes at all? You know, most of the time they'd be like, yeah, sure. That's awesome. Yeah. And they'd send me files and then it would be like an official release. So they weren't like bootleg remixes. Right. But when you have such great artists with great songs to start with, then it's really hard to fuck it up. Oh yeah. So it made like a really nice, gentle learning curve for me. Cause I could experiment and like, no matter what I did, I felt like the songs are great. So like it would be a, a challenge to make it bad right right the song's everything yeah so the song always wins well
0: let me ask you a question the um like when you wanted to get into playing drum kit you like you shed the shit out of it and you like learned it is remixing like the beginning of your like shedding production
1: yeah i mean that was what what really got me into it because all of the time that i had spent in those different bands and especially when i was in cheerleader when i'd be in there playing drums i always was asking a million questions to the producers and the engineers okay like to this day like i am terrible with gear i don't know model numbers and even i was talking to somebody the other day about how there are plugins that i use literally every day like the eventide omnipressor i use that all the time but there are functions on there that i move around and i adjust and i don't even actually remember what the function is called because i just know it's like oh it's that that third button from the left or, you know or like i just like i just go into instinct mode and i know what it does it's like oh well when i have the attack speed at 7.49 whatever like my brain just doesn't work like that yeah so when i'd be asking all these questions it was always it wasn't like well what are you doing what's that thing called it's more like well why are you doing that like what are you trying to achieve what are you hearing that you're wanting to change to get to a certain result and why are you aiming for that result so when we're working with great people, like we did our first album with uh, Mark Needham out in LA and getting to ask Mark and Will and Ben, like his whole team, like I, I probably annoyed the crap out of them, but I, I do not feel sorry about that at all. It was worth it. But yeah, asking them you know, a million questions that we did uh, two songs with Andrew Murray up in Brooklyn and same thing. And, you know, he and I hit it off right away. And I, I call him my unofficial remix pimp because he would just be always introducing me to bands to do remixes for him. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I was always fascinated by that. And I think that's maybe why remixing was such a passion for me, because it was a chance for me to take something that was great and transform it into something in a new way of framing it, where I always had like a specific kind of goal in mind. And I just, I figured out how to get there. I figured out the execution as I went along, but I knew that my main purpose was to have a, a great vision for it and to have a an idea and like a certain like texture or like environment or world that I'm trying to create so the the how to get there like the actual execution has always been kind of secondary to me which is weird considering like how many mixes I'm doing and like how often I'm I'm doing this stuff but just for whatever reason like there there's uh, some of the slate compressors that I use like use them all the time I don't even know what the actual plugins called like it just goes in it's like whatever the visual equivalent of like in one ear and out the other is. Like I know it's like not the gray one; it's the one above the list than the gray. You know what I mean? Like that's
0: you don't even know what the name is; you just know where to click to open it.
1: Yeah, I know which. I know what it looks like when it pops up, and and you know some. I'm sure there are some people that are just like aggressively turning off this podcast right now. But I don't know. Like for for me, the details like that have always been secondary to the details of the sound and like what I'm actually trying to achieve for the project like the the meaning behind every decision rather than the decision itself yeah that's really
0: interesting i I wanted to interrupt you a second ago but i also didn't want to interrupt you i feel like everybody's got to go back and listen to that again because uh the fact that you didn't care what the button was or what the button did and you only cared why somebody was pressing the button what's the purpose for what you're doing, not what are you doing, I think is like really, really good. Because when I went to school, I was very well-educated, very well-trained on how everything worked. Mm -hmm. So when I left Berkeley, I basically understood the concept behind everything. And so then that allowed me to learn like how people used it, or I I didn't have to wonder what somebody was doing when I watched an engineer do something because I understood what the gear was so I could watch how they were using it. I think the fact that I have that technical background, I remained keeping that a focus. Uh, Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's like that became like my learning method is very scientific. Your learning method is very like artistic.
1: I, I think it's similar to how a lot of people that have a really deep music theory understanding have a hard time composing pop music because they can't not think about music theory. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. My degree was in orchestral percussion. So, like, I'm a theory nerd, and it distracts me a lot of times. It's great when I can use it for problem solving. Like, if I hear something weird happening, I know where to look for I know what to listen for, because I can, I can tell, like, oh, like, you know, if that should be a flat seven, but it's like a, a natural seven, whatever. Right. But when I'm using it for anything other than problem solving, it ends up becoming, like, a, a burden. Yeah. And I feel like for some engineers and, and producers when they have that that background knowledge, it really helps them to quickly solve problems, but sometimes becomes a bit of a distraction or a hurdle because they're like, well, this is what you're supposed to do, rather than thinking about, well, why am I choosing this? Like, why am I choosing Glenn Johns? You know, I'll be honest, I'm not even really sure what that is. I know it's a way of like making things up. I'm not an I'm not a tracking engineer. I'll admit that. Because if I'm gonna be playing drums, I'm hiring somebody else to engineer. I'm hiring them because they know what they're doing. Yeah. But that, that's not like the point. It's like there are people that will have their way of, you know, making drums like come hell or high water rather than thinking, well, why are you doing this? Like, what are the benefits of this versus the the compromises that this particular setup presents?
0: Yeah, I love it when a conversation makes me think about like my career because of what you're saying I feel like I was slower to find what my sound is, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And I could because I was always about the technical and like the understanding that you kind of put yourself in a box. But when you don't have any rules and you're just like, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? I feel like inherently you're just creating your sound from the beginning and then supporting yourself with the technicals as needed, as opposed to using the technicals to discover yourself. It's fascinating.
1: Absolutely. And honestly, I don't think this is your intent, but I feel like this actually transitions really nicely into the kind of coaching that I do and the way that I approach doing outreach as well, because there's a lot of this very natural, like when I'm reaching out to potential clients and I'm trying to create conversations with people, like it's all about the focus of like, well, why am I connecting with them? Why is this artist someone that I want to talk to and, and want to work with? And I'm making these decisions based on you know, the the bigger picture of, well, can I help them? You know, am I going to be a good fit for them? And then it's a matter of like what I do with that artist, like whether I'm mixing or I'm playing drums or I'm mastering or giving mix feedback, whatever. That specific execution, that specific operation that I'm doing is going to be purely based on the bigger picture of why is this important to me? Yeah. It's so much more exciting when you're
0: engaged in that manner If you're not working with music that you're passionate about, like, what's the point? And so the thing that I've really taken away from the PDF that you shared with me is that all you want to do is work with music that you're passionate about because then it's always fun. Like, going to work is never a drag if you would listen to the band anyway. You know what I'm saying? And it's so few people get to do that.
1: Yeah. And I think you make better decisions if you're passionate because if you're passionate about it, then the why behind it You're resonating with it, and so is the artist. Yeah. If you're not passionate about it, just generally speaking, like, people have to admit this. Like, if you're not passionate about it, generally, you don't really care about the why. You're just trying to get the what over with. Right? That's harsh. Yeah. But I think everybody listening has been guilty of that. I've been guilty of that. And that passion and that excitement as a prerequisite for taking on the project, like, that is something that encourages and really, like, emphasizes— the focus on the why and not just focusing on the what and the how. Yeah, agreed. Which is, you know, the what and the how is easier to quantify. So it's easier to sell that kind of a service. It's easier to just be like, well, yeah, I, I do mixing. You need mixing. Let me mix you. Give me money. That's a really easy thing to describe. But there's a lot of different ways that experience could go, both for the for the mixer and for the artist. Totally. The what and the how, like you
0: said, is it's the thing that like directly affects your bottom line it's the thing where you're like okay i mixed 150 songs i made x amount of money i made my money goal it's but like how many of those were the why how many of those like made you super excited that you even like did it
1: yeah and that could be the the songs themselves or it could just be the people yeah you know like there could be there could be plenty of times where it may not be the most proudest you've ever been of a project you've worked on but you had a great time actually doing it. And it was like, you're getting paid to just like be creative with awesome people. And I think we need that every once in a while. I feel like if we're only going on one extreme, which is like saying yes to everything, and then the other extreme is like only doing music that is like exactly what you want. And I feel like you still need a balance of opportunities where you can learn, you know, that you can stretch yourself and that you can just enjoy yourself. I look at it like you're doing a cross-country road trip and Every time that you are putting your foot on the gas, like you want to be making sure that you're driving in the general direction of your destination. Yeah. But if you don't stop a little rest stop and stretch or stop at, you know, a national park or the world's largest ball of yarn or whatever it is, like those are the things that kind of like recharge you and re-energize you and give you more energy to be able to continue on that path towards what you want. As opposed to being like, I'm gonna drive from Lancaster over to LA. But Before I do that, I'm just gonna meander up towards Vermont. Like that just doesn't that doesn't really help anybody. But you know, taking a little break, going ten minutes off the road to do something that's fun and memorable, even if it isn't directly in line with your long term goals, I think is something that kind of keeps the quality of life as a producer and mixer up there too. Oh yeah, that's something I, I I just put a lot of thought into and a lot of care into. It's just like that quality of life of The service provider. Totally. What you were saying reminded me of
0: something that I think I put in one of my intros or I meant to and it got cut. But the idea of like, there's a lot of things you do in your career that are a side quest. Yeah. And it's to pick up a skill, total video game nerd reference, but it's to learn something new or like just chill out for a minute or you got to level up before you get your next gig. Like you can't work with the biggest artist in the world without doing a lot of records. So this is why I wanted to have you on the show. This is the conversation I wanted to have. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah, no, I, to- I totally agree. And like those side quests are super important. They're, they're going to be just experiences. And you, and you never know when those experiences are going to come in handy. It's always at the most random time and the most unexpected time.
0: So from your like your coaching experiences and probably mm-hmm. those probably stem from having conversations with clients and, and workers. Is there something that plagues most engineers and producers where they never really have a clear vision so they don't know what direction to drive? Like, is there anything that
1: they can do to kind of get that focus? I don't know if this is the direct cause of it, but I feel like one thing that does plague a lot of people is kind of like we talked about earlier, like how there are you know, the winter is a dry season and the summer is is super busy. And I feel like, regardless of the time of year, I feel like a lot of producers and engineers when they're busy, they don't set aside any time to network and connect they just kind of like try to get through what they're doing and then when that work is over and all of a sudden they're in that the the famine part of the feast or famine then they're scrambling to be able to make rent so they take on everything that comes their way no matter how exciting it is or how fulfilling it is or how good it is it's just like the the paycheck is really you know survivalist mode kicks in and all of a sudden it's like about the paycheck and then They get into a situation where they said yes to too many things and now they're too busy. And then all of a sudden, now they have like their schedule's totally full and they're too burnt out to put any time into actively trying to create, you know, those connections and like finding more work for three months from now. They're all just trying to figure out, well, how am I going to fill up the rest of this month? Whereas the thing that I think helps in general, which is the whole impetus for, you know, this course really is honestly, it's like the whole like kind of central focus of my beliefs and approach to, you know, being in the industry in 2022. It's just, you know, doing little bits of consistent outreach, regardless of how busy you are. If you want to put a little bit more effort into it when it's a slow time, like if you had, you know, you had somebody canceled on you and now you have like three hours that you don't know what to do. And you, I mean, I'm assuming everyone's always going to be scrambling to get caught up on something else, right? But like, if you set, you know, Part of that time and do some extra outreach. Great. But if you can just set aside time to send, you know, three messages a day. Yeah. Just, you know, casual messages, not for the purpose of, holy shit, I need money right now. Please hire me right now. And just more like being a human, talking to a human and getting on people's radars. So that way when they do need somebody, you're top of mind. Because the the chances of... Like the likeliness of you reaching out to anybody, right? Reach out to any artist uh, that you love their music and you want to work with them. The likeliness of them needing exactly what you do, exactly when you're messaging them, is astronomically improbable, right? Now, you might be the perfect fit for them in six months, but they just, they just wrapped up their first full length and they're kind of in album promo mode and they're not thinking about recording new songs yet. But if you get on their radar be a good person and, you know, kind of keep up with them and just be a fan, then when that time comes, like, you'd be surprised how many people are like, oh, you know, we're, we're doing some new stuff. We'd love to get your thoughts on it. And it slowly like kind of turns into actual work. You're planting seeds, right? You're not going to plant seeds to harvest them, you know, at eight o'clock tonight. <laughs> That's, it's just not how it works. I, I know this is not uh, necessarily an agricultural podcast, but not yet, yeah, not but there's yet. still
0: time. Well, I'm assuming because you're doing this course and you have so many clients everywhere that you do this. Yeah. This this method is created from your experiences. So in your experience, like as somebody that has done outreach to people to varying degrees of success, there's probably people listening that have done it. There's probably people that listening that haven't done it. What would you say your percentage
1: of messages that get no response is? For me, I probably get a response 60 or 70% of the time. Oh.
0: Okay. That is not what I expected you to say.
1: (laughs) Well, that's why I'm writing a course there, buddy. No, um, (laughs) Sign me up. (laughs) No, well, that's, the thing is because I, I am very particular with who I reach out to. I don't want to say I do a lot of research, but like, I spend a lot of time developing the kind of questions that I want to ask myself about an artist before I reach out to them. I'll say that. I did a lot of research on that. Like, what are the kind of qualifiers? So, I only really reach out to, if it's like a totally cold message, like I am very particular with who I reach out to. I really want to go into it thinking that not only am I going to really enjoy their music, even if they never respond to my message, like I'm still going to like their music and still be a fan. i super particular about that. And also I try to set up my, you know, website, social media, all that stuff to be very... Polarizing has kind of a negative connotation to it, but I have it set up so that way when people go to it, they get a sense of who I am and like what my personality is like and if I could maybe be a good fit for them and they're going to know like pretty quickly whether or not I'm the kind of guy they want to hang out with or I'm or I'm not. Just like kind of going back to what you said like when you listen to me on the podcast, on Ben's podcast and you're like, "Oh, I just want to like hang out with this guy." I'm trying to let as much of myself out as possible so that way the people that want to hang out with me and like want to make music with me and want to be on a team with me are the ones that are going to reach out and 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 connect with me and the ones that don't if they say who the fuck is this guy what an idiot cool we're probably not going to get along yeah eliminated yeah eliminated i, I want to like filter those people out right away yeah so because of that the combination of you know me trying to just put myself out there as who i am and what my you know generally what my values are what my interests are like what my personality is like and then reaching out to these people that I feel like I love their music and they're probably, they seem like they might have similar kind of personalities. They might kind of like mesh well with me. So it's a very targeted sort of outreach. It's not just like machine gunning messages out to a hundred artists a day. Like I could do that and maybe four or five of them might coincidentally potentially be a good fit and, and respond. But if I'm very particular about it, my response rate's going to be a lot higher. And also like, Generally speaking, if literally any artist that I reach out to ends up wanting to work with me, I'm gonna be super happy because I know that I'm only reaching out to artists that I really want to work with and they're I love their music. So it's like everything's a win. Everything's a win. And and there are some times when you realize like musically they're a great fit, personality-wise, they're a great fit, but just like they don't need me. And that's cool, or maybe they can't afford me, or maybe they do it all themselves. And Maybe they mix and master themselves and they're really great at it, but maybe they do need someone to do some additional production. Cool. You know, or maybe they're a great mixing engineer and they struggle with mastering. So I've done that with artists too, where I don't go into it with a specific goal of I want to perform this service for you. Pay me for that service. It's like, I really like your music. I have a feeling you might get along with me anyway. I think we could just like become friends. So let's talk about music and let's find out like what you actually really need. Like what are the things that are really holding you back from moving forward and let's see if I'm the right fit to maybe help you with that. And if I am, awesome. If I'm not, let me see if I know anybody that could be. You know, maybe they just really need a a live bass player. I can make some recommendations. Do you need a mixing engineer? But just like the budget doesn't work out, I know plenty of people that I could still refer them to. You know, and it all comes from making that connection and, and making it about the personal connection first. Yeah, Because any time, like, Anybody listening? If you're thinking about the sessions that you've done and the gigs you've done that have been like the most, you know, uh, enriching to your career, like sure, like if there are some people that worked with you know on a Taylor Swift album, maybe that'll be a nice little bump on their portfolio. But generally speaking, when you're thinking about it, like the ones that you had the most fun and got the most out of as a as a person are ones that you really got along with everybody on the team, right? They were just like enjoyable experiences for you and for. The artist. Yeah. And generally speaking, a lot of times those are the ones that also turn into return clients. So it's not just one project. It might end up being one project every six weeks for the next couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's that's what happened to me. So me doing this outreach, me doing this, going back to your question about like whether or not this is like based on my experience. This is what I've been doing for the past maybe three years now. And when 2020 kind of like Became the shit show that it was last year, I guess up until 2021, 2020 was my best year ever. And I had way more projects than I I normally had. And I made way more money than I normally had. Whereas most of my friends and peers were having the opposite problem. They were just like really struggling to find work. Yeah. And it's not that I'm a better mixer than them. It's not that I'm a better, you know, anything like that than them. It's just that thankfully I kind of figured out like, oh, I should just, you know, have us be a steady trickle out, you know, and like all, always trying to to network and not stressing out about only having gigs right now. Yeah. And or trying to find stuff for right now or just saying, screw it, I'm busy. I don't need to to find anybody that, that kind of hubris that takes over us. At the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, I was doing a lot of soul searching and trying to figure out what were those differences between the way that i handled my business and the way that my friends and peers handled their business and i felt like the outreach and the follow-ups and like kind of that methodology that i've had that was the the biggest glaring difference between what i've seen at least like the people that were able to keep it steady and grow despite the pandemic despite living in you know rural amish country pennsylvania um, as opposed to people that, you know, shutdowns began and they just didn't know what to do and they didn't know how to adapt. Yeah. Did you start your outreach in like 2019?
0: Was it compounding and like really kind of exploded in 2020? Or did you start this method in 2020?
1: Not as organized as I did in 2020.
0: Yeah. You were just doing it without thinking about it.
1: I was just doing it without thinking about it. It was really, it wasn't until like 2021 when I, like after the really good year, when I sat down and started trying to refine the process. That was just just doing it. It was just kind of part of my, you know, my normal mode of operations. And it might have honestly, it probably comes back to when I was first getting into being a musician full time and I was sending out all those Craigslist ads and I was always trying to find work. So I think that really influenced and educated how I approached because I I knew if I wasn't always trying to find work, some work would find me, but I had no control over that. Like I need to be proactively in control of my own destiny so whatever <laughs> so I think that's something that I, I picked up and learned from my my time as a, a session musician and like a gig musician especially you know when I was living in the vegan Philly so I wasn't in a big city that I just had you know friends that were main engineers at big studios and I just got the call all the time like I I wasn't able to rely on people calling me I had to make sure that I was earning and deserving as much word of mouth as I could but I couldn't just wait for that
0: there's something else that everything you've said has kind of made me think about you said that you kind of sat back and you're like, like, what did I do differently in 2020 that got me work versus what did some people I know do that didn't help them? And I think you posted something about this on Instagram. But I feel like people that are more focused on input goals versus output goals are you're familiar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For people, anybody listening that doesn't know an input goal is like, focusing on like the work you put in versus the output goal is like outcomes. So you can't necessarily control outcomes.
1: Yeah. So a good example that I use is like an outcome goal would be like New Year's resolution kind of thing. I want to lose 30 pounds. An input goal is I want to go to the gym four mornings a week. Yeah. Right. So it's more about the input goal is more of a, of a habit building life change more so than just focusing on the result. Well, first off, how are you going to lose those 30 pounds? Because there's no plan, there's no strategy, it's just an empty goal. Totally. And then once you reach that goal, well, then what? You know, whereas, you know, setting a plan to go to the gym a certain number of days or setting a plan to do a certain number of outreach every day or so many days a week, like that's something that is going to stick with you much more long-term and you're not going to get frazzled trying to figure out, well, how do I achieve that that outcome goal? But then also you're not going to get burnt out by not seeing the results right away because you're looking for results that you can't control. Like, you can't fully control who responds to you. You can't fully control who hires you. No. But you can control how consistently you try to connect with people. Yep. You couldn't control whether you're going to get into that drum program. You can only
0: control how much you practice before you auditioned. Yeah. It's like, that. that's kind of the perfect example. And I feel like a lot of people get defeated because they focus on, like, I want to win my Grammy. Yeah. I want to get my number one, whatever it was. The only thing you control is the work you put in, Mm -hmm. the connections that you make, the skills that you pick up, the practice you do. That's the only thing you can control. So I feel like those are the things that people need to celebrate the wins on. Yeah. I had an outcome goal recently that was a big win. I would have never assumed that I would have achieved that goal. Yeah. I can only
1: control the work that I put in. Totally. And like for me, for 2021, I initially wanted to have a goal of, you know, doing a certain number of mixes or doing a a, reaching a certain arbitrary goal of output. And instead I was like, I'm not going to worry about the total number of releases that come out or the total number of mixes that I work on. I'm going to focus on how many connections can I create? How many opportunities can I create? And then see what that outcome is. If that outcome is great, then awesome. Then maybe I'll try to continue this for next year. So like now I'm on track to have 215 releases in 2021. Nice. That's something like if I was like, oh, I'm going to make my goal to do that next year, that's kind of a fool's errand because I can't really control how many people hire me. I can't control how many songs I work on. But if I keep my focus on networking with people, making sure that my current clients are super happy and want to keep coming back, you know, that's something that I feel a lot of people don't pay enough attention to. You know, just trying to say, hey, I've got this great thing going. How do I keep it going? What was I doing right? What was I wasting time on yeah that kind of a thing and generally speaking if you make tweaks and intelligent thoughtful changes to the input goal probably going to surpass whatever that output goal would have been in the first place oh, i agree completely and
0: the more i think about it it's like as you go through your career obviously you get better and you meet more people but i feel like while we're talking about this basically the only thing that matters for success once you reach a certain point in your career is your positioning yeah which is controlled by your Input goals like if you put yourself in a position to potentially have your massive output goals to check those boxes, then you can do them. you know it's like if you don't do that outreach or you don't meet the a and r people or you don't do whatever, like if you're not in the position to hit it, then that's the only thing that matters
1: really That's at a certain point yeah, that should be the goal. The goal should be putting yourself in that position, yeah, which is a lot harder to define and takes a lot more reflection and honesty, really. That is a lot harder to do. Whereas like, I want to achieve this or that. Like that's, that's kind of easy to put into words, but like the staring yourself in the mirror (laughs) and figuring out what, you know, (laughs) are you really good enough to do that many? Are you really good enough to like do that particular level or like have so many streams, whatever? Like, what do I need to do to get there too? And that's huge.
0: I've never thought about this. And maybe we can, we can wrap on this because obviously there's a lot of people that listen to the show that are producers and engineers. That's where we live And so that's kind of where we've been talking to. But there are a lot of artists and, like, musicians and creators that listen to the show. What is the positioning and the input goal for, like, the new artist?
1: From an artist side, I mean, I guess I would imagine uh, it would be, you know, well, let's say I want to hit 10,000 followers on Instagram. Okay, well, it's more a matter of what do I need to do to achieve that? And what's going to help me to get there? So what will probably help would be to get verified. Okay, so what do you need to get verified? You can look into that and you can figure out, well, what are those benchmarks, right? And then you can say, okay, well, if I want to reach those benchmarks, what do I need to do? And you just work backwards and probably it's going to come down to creating engaging content. Yeah. You know, and, and creating it consistently. And that's the hard thing. It's really fucking easy to just think, oh, I want to reach that goal. I want to get that many followers. But like actually doing the work to get there is really difficult. Or some people just kind of get dumb luck into it with like a viral video. Right. But yeah, I guess that's my answer,
0: I think. Yeah. The reason I ask is, and wanted to kind of wrap on it, is I feel like if there's any group of people in music that really suffer the most from the, we'll we'll say the outcome, is I feel like it's the artist and the creator because it's like, I want to be number one. I want to be on the radio. I want to have 100 million streams. You have no control over any of those things. You have no idea whether where a hundred million people are going to resonate with your song. Yeah, there's no control. There's nothing you can do that can make that happen. So you have to find the things that put you in a position where maybe that can happen, yeah. or whatever the best you, you can get is. You're there to get that. Yeah. So I don't have an answer either.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was I, as you were saying that I was thinking like maybe the next step even before creating engaging social media content. I don't know why I didn't think about this because this is something that I think about all the time in the business coaching kind of like sense. But it's not just about making a bunch of engaging content. It's about really determining who your audience is and making content that's going to be engaging to them. Mm, yeah. That's the part that I feel like people don't don't know where to start as artists. And especially as, oh God, I, can, I don't want to go into a big rant, but I can totally go into a big rant about <laughs> like producers and mix engineers who make kind of content that's like not at all what they should be making. <laughs> But just like, I'll I'll keep it short. I think we can talk about this off off the call. But um, like there's somebody that's a mix engineer, and they want to find mixing clients. So they think, oh, I should make mix tutorials and show everybody how much of a badass I am. No. Then they make these content that make this stuff, and it's like, cool. This is this plugin that I used, and I did you know, look here, I did a seven dB shelf at the blah, blah, blah. I you know, I don't know technical terms, so I don't know. I can't, I'd say, uh, I know Pro-Q3, I use that a lot. (laughs) It's better than the stock logic one. But yeah, but they'll go real deep into the weeds and they end up making content that, you know, other mix engineers are going to be like, yeah, cool, man, this is great. And they get this kind of air quotes, (laughs) positive reinforcement. And all of a sudden they start making more and more of these videos and they're getting likes and engagement from other mix engineers. And if your goal is to get, you know, mixing students, you know, from like an educational standpoint, then absolutely that is the right way to go because your your audience are people that are trying to learn and get better and and understand that more. Yeah. But if you're trying to get mixed clients, making a video that shows how cool you are and how many like nerdy knobs you can twiddle, is isn't going to be as effective as, hey, here's this great song by this great artist I was working with and they were trying to achieve this and we experimented and this is what we ended up trying that achieved their sonic vision for it. You know, it could be the same song, the same mix engineer doing that, but when you frame it in a way that's showing artists that you can help them and that you understand them and that your goal is to help them, you know, rather than, these are my five favorite free EQ plugins in 2021. Like, it just has a different, it resonates with different people and you need to be very conscious of who you're trying to resonate with and making your content accordingly. Yeah. If I wanted to make a mix tutorial, it would take me, like, I could do that in my sleep. Like, I would love to geek out about some stuff like that, but I don't want to because I don't think my audience wants that. No. You know? And also, I guess because I'm not a super geek with that anyway, I probably wouldn't be philosophical. You
0: don't know what the buttons are? You're like, you just
1: press here. I don't know what the buttons are. I don't know. Just press, press this one. It sounds good. Yeah. Sounds good. People hire me. I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. So for the artists, what they should be doing, I think it would be the first step would be to really try to narrow down who their target is. And I think for music production professionals, whether you're a producer, you're a mix engineer, mastering engineer, even I have a couple of students that are uh, full-time like remote session drummers. It's like the same thing, like figuring out who your audience is and who you can really do the most good for. And those people will find the most value in what you do and then figure out, okay, well, what kind of personality am I trying to attract, right? Or like, how can I present myself in a way that, you know, I'm kind of not muddying up the website and my social media content with things that don't matter, right? Right. Like, I love watching videos on, like, astrophysics and video game design. For whatever reason, I love, I don't design video games. I just love watching YouTube videos about that. I'm not going to post about that on my website, that I'm a, you know, a big fan of Game Maker's Toolkit. <laughs> That's not adding any value to my my audience. So it's not about lying and like trying to present yourself as something that you're not. It's about figuring out, well, what are the things about me that they're going to resonate with? And then making all of your content decisions based on kind of like that buyer persona, right? Like your target audience, not just who you think will find you valuable. What experiences would you find valuable? Like what kind of artists would you want to work with? What kind of music do you want to be working on?
0: Yeah, that's all really good. You, you know, the thing I thought of is, and I can't take credit for it, is uh, it was... I'm guessing that you've probably listened to Six Figure Home Studio now mm-hmm. called Six Figure Creative, but there was uh, something that they said on there, which really kind of like this is going back to the mixers making mix tip videos. If you're going to like provide value and provide content for people, like if you're a mixer, like you said, making mix tip videos is not going to get you mixed clients. You need to solve a problem that's earlier in the chain. Like you need to help songwriters get their song finished, you need to help. Producers get their song recorded. You need to like, if you want clients, you need those people that are downriver to get to you.
1: And why are you going to teach them to do the thing that they were going to be hiring you to do in the first place? (laughs) Right? Like, (laughs) like the fishmonger isn't the one teaching you how to fish. That's right. That's right. Also, I just want to point out that uh, we talked about agriculture and fishmongering now. (laughs) 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 We're just going to really fuck with the algorithm with like, who is this for? Oh, yeah. This is going to be
0: the most confusing transcription ever. So I've got closing questions. If you've got some more time. Yeah. I've got one more thing I wanted to kind of wrap on before we do our traditional closing. We were talking one time about Bounce Butler. Mm-hmm. Great. So now we've just talked about Six Figure Home Studio and Chris Graham. Now we're talking about Bounce Butler. It's like, hey, Chris, this episode sponsored by you on accident. The fact that you use Bounce Butler makes me think that you're a very efficient worker that you have like mm-hmm. some, or that you're trying to have some type of like work-life balance. And also you did tell me that you've done the most bounces of anybody in Bounce Butler, I believe you, right? I think
1: I'm, I'm up there when I was talking to Kyle about it. You may have been passed. I I, oh, I don't know. He, uh, he didn't have an exact number. <laughs> um, he was going to look into it and I, I haven't heard back, so I'll, I'll, I'll check with him, but it was an absurd number. Like it was a, a stupid, stupid number. Amazing. Yeah. Got my money's worth, that's for sure.
0: Anyway, so obviously you like to be efficient. Mm-hmm. Do you have do you have any thoughts or tips? Like, why are you that way? Delegate.
1: Okay, go for it, do it. Oh, delegate as much as you possibly can. Yeah. Another one of those very difficult look yourself in the mirror kind of questions you'd ask yourself is, what are the things that I can do best and nobody else can do better than me? And what are the things that, Don't need to be done by me. Mm. And everybody at first is going to be like, well, I got to do all of it. Everybody in this industry is a fucking micromanager at first. And I I am by nature, and it it took me a while to train myself out of that. But I delegate out all of my mixed prep. I used to delegate out all like the mixed STEM printing as well. Like my assistant used to sign on through Zoom, give him remote control from Montreal. He would like, Julian, you're the best. He would get on Zoom with my computer, and he would bounce all of my mix stems for me in real time from Montreal while he's like watching Netflix, and I'm like downstairs eating dinner with the family. And then I got bounce butler, and that kind of sorry Julian. <laughs> yeah, the the robots came for his job, but yeah. So he's been doing all my mix prep. Generally speaking, I I do mastering sometimes. Um, I very rarely master my own mixes, just because a lot of reasons. But I like having the objectivity of it. But also, it just ends up being a better result if I'm removed from that i'm too close to it to make real objective decisions at that point yeah but also it takes time from the project away from me so it frees up more time for me to do other songs and other projects are you delegating mastering like is it included in your fee
0: and then you're paying somebody or you're suggesting hey go to my buddy jim bob he's a great mastering engineer
1: um i usually pitch the team like when i'm setting the proposals out or like haven't whether it's an actual proposal or it's like a conversation like i'll talk about like everybody that's involved and who's going to be and like what the total price is like i'll handle okay you know getting them paid and uh nicholas de lorenzo who i use for most of my mastering he's in australia so it depends on where my client is from because if they're in the states i'll just have them pay me and then i'll pay nicholas but if they're in england or whatever i'll just have them pay nick directly so that way paypal only takes one set of fees. Mm, true. Rather than like UK to US and then US to Australia. Right. Yeah, either way, like I just, you know, make it very clear, like who I want to be involved in, why I want them to be involved. And yeah, I, I mean, the, the thing that going back to the earning and deserving word of mouth discussion from earlier, the more songs that I can get out into the world, the more potential clients are hearing my work, whether they're aware of it or not. Yeah. Right. So it's like a, Like a a snowball kind of effect where the, the more songs I can get out there, the more artists are sharing those songs and the more of their friends and fans are engaging and interacting with it and hearing my work. So if I can do less per song, do like have less involvement per song, then I have time to do more songs and I can kind of like grow that quite a bit faster And it's not me saying that I'm going to try to rush through things. It's not me saying that I'm going to half-ass anything. It's just me being very objective and honest with the fact that prepping my mix session, like color coding things and making everything like in the routing that needs to be in my template. I don't need to be the one to do that. There's like a certain level of training need to have an understanding of, you know, the software and also of my general like methodology, but I can train someone how to do that. And that's, Awesome. And the same thing with Bounce Butler, like, thank God for that thing. Because like, I spent so many, we figured out how many hours I would have wasted compared to using Bounce Butler. And it was, it was some ridiculous, it was hundreds of hours that I saved from using Bounce Butler. It's amazing. Yeah. So it's those types of things of just figuring out, I need to be the one doing mixes. My other assistant, Noah, is going to be, you know, sharing the space with me some days when I move into that. And I've been toying with the idea of maybe having him help me with mixed revisions. I'm not sure how it's going to work logistically. I've never really looked into it before because ever since I really needed the time and availability that I could justify having an assistant, it was all during COVID and remote. So doing mixed revisions through Zoom's remote keyboard control and stuff is just super clunky. Yeah. So this will be the first time I have somebody in the room. So I'm not sure if it's going to work out, but generally revisions take like no time at all. So... Yeah, but it's just being, again, being conscious of, like, what do you enjoy doing? What are the things that, like, are really, like, actually dependent upon your taste and decision-making and skill set versus the things that maybe you're good at, but maybe you don't love as much. Yeah. You know, like, I I can do vocal editing, but I hate doing it, so I'm gonna hire somebody else. Because there's, generally speaking, anybody that I would hire is going to be better than me faster than me and probably cheaper than me. Right. So why would I not do that?
0: Yeah. Well I think one of the things that a lot of people, a lot of engineers or mixers like is like a gut check for them is is that they don't want to pay anybody to like do their mix prep or they don't want to pay anybody to do their stems or whatever. I feel like those people don't have a no offense to those people. They're not in touch with exactly what their hourly wage is. Yeah. And it's like you kind of have to understand like what your time is worth. And then you're like, you know what? If I pay this guy twenty dollars an hour and he does this for me, and I can mix an extra song and a half, that actually means that I'm making $170 an hour instead of 80 Yep. Like, maybe that is worth paying money to somebody. Exactly, yeah. I think anybody that, you know, is considering that, and they're, like, fighting it, just, like, try to figure out what you get paid per hour, and then figure if you can, like Carl said, he can get more songs out in the world, so it's worth his money to pay people to
1: do other things or it just frees up a little bit of extra like that the 20 minutes it takes to do the mixed prep that's 20 minutes that i can spend doing outreach there you go and you know it's trying to get work for the future yeah so to, to back to your thought like to you know to bring up chris graham one more time uh one of the things he always <laughs> says is that uh that henry ford quote of you know people being afraid to walk past a small pile of money to get to a bigger pile of money and that's Yeah. Kind of what's happening when people don't want to delegate. They're like afraid to spend the twenty dollars to, you know, be able to open up the time, the time and the the mental clarity too and the excitement. Yeah. Because again, that quality of life thing we're talking about. I, I don't wake up in the morning and say, Oh my God, I am so lucky. I get to prep mix sessions today. Like that that thought does not go through my brain. Instead, now I can wake up and I'm like, Oh, I'm just doing two mixes today. Awesome. That's right. The only thing I have to do is like download the already prepped session from our shared Dropbox. It's like download it and open the file up. Everything's ready to go. Everything's color coded. Everything's renamed. Everything's like where I want it. And I can just go. I don't have to be like, uh, crap. Um, So what is, what's the difference between audio 492, audio 493, audio 494? (laughs) You know, I don't have to deal with that stuff. No, And I did for plenty of years, but I feel like I've paid my dues and I'm just over it. Yeah,
0: as you should be. Cool, man. This is awesome. Let's hit our closing questions because I know you have to go at some point. Otherwise, we'd be here all day. One thing that I think would be interesting is this season, I'm trying to kind of highlight credits in the music industry okay. and just kind of like bring light to the fact that it's a lot of people that are being miscredited or not credited. It's hard to know who worked on what. And it's really how you build a career. And I feel like maybe you'd have an interesting opinion coming from working on a lot of independent releases. What do you you think about credits from what you're doing
1: now? Well, I know that I could spend time, you know, bitching and moaning on Facebook forums about it, or I could actually try to do something. for a podcast. (laughs) Or I could, you know, do my part in trying to encourage, you know, a bit of a different culture. And what I've been doing for a while is I try, like whenever I have a release out, I tried to, to, I tried to give it credit to and tag like every single person that was on it. So like I had three releases come out today and on the post, like I'll list like the personnel hierarchy of everybody on every song. Nice. Amazing. You know, even if like there's one song I just did mastering for, but like I'm going to list everybody else on it. And if I know, if I can find out who the photographer was for the cover art, I'm going to tag them. If there's like a music video that comes out, I'm going to tag everybody and, like, list what they've done. You know, I just want to show that it's a whole team that puts these things together, and I want to make sure that everybody's getting the attention. And there is a selfish reason behind that, too, because, you know, the more people that I tag on the post, the more likely they're going to share it. You know, so there is, (laughs) I don't want to sound like a total martyr. Like, I do acknowledge that there's, you know, other reasons why it's good to do this, but if you're like, ah, that's too much work. I don't want to tag people. I don't want to put thought into a post. I just want to post the cover art and say, hey, this song I mixed came out, go listen to it. And then like not give any streaming links. I'm right here. You don't have to make fun of me. I'm sorry. I I wasn't (laughs) trying to call you out specifically, but... Carl and I have ranted on this in the past. Oh, yes. I have like night sweats and my wife wakes me up. It's like, stop talking about fucking personnel lists. No, I don't. That doesn't actually happen, but...
0: So are you going back to the... Like if you're just the mastering engineer, you hitting the artist with an email that says, Hey, I love to tag everybody. Like, can you send me as many names as you have?
1: Yeah. Like I'll just, if I'm not sure, I'll generally speaking, you know, a week or so before the release, like I have my Trello is a godsend, but I have a different card for all of the different projects that are coming out kind of like in chronological order of when like the release dates are and whatnot. So I'll shoot them a message like a week or so before and like ask them to send me the Instagram handles with everybody that's involved and any artwork that they have, any visuals that they made. Like yesterday I had a song come out and the artist, Leah, who's amazing, she didn't have any music video or anything for it, but she did make an animated Spotify canvas for it. So we just had her send me the canvas video and we looped it in, you know, Premiere or whatever, and added some music behind it. And now we have like a piece of video content for Instagram and I was just repurposing what the artists already made. That's awesome. Very cool. So if the artists are doing their due diligence and like already like putting the work in for the things beyond just the actual song itself, then, you know, why shouldn't I take a a clip of their lyric video or a clip of their music video or a clip of their, their Spotify canvas and like turn that into something as well.
0: Yeah. It's awesome. Amazing. So, uh, was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you?
1: Every moment of every day. No. I have not had that one yet. Maybe a little bit of, you know, goalposts being moved by myself a little bit. But I don't know, I feel like it's such a, back to that input goal versus output goal, success is an output goal. So I don't really worry too much about that. I love it. That's good. I just
0: cut you off because I thought it was, I thought that was enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is like kind of sums it up because you know so many people are like oh yeah and then after i did this and i kind of like decided that i wanted to do this but you're right it's like success is just the outcome you know yeah it's
1: just what's going to happen or like the success would be did i meet my input goal yeah yeah generally speaking like the traditional view of success you know something that you really can't control
0: so then um what right now is the uh, current biggest goal that you can share with us and what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards it
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, Biggest next goal is to finish the video course I'm making and find a couple more business coaching clients. I love doing it. It's been really, really fun. And yeah, the course has been really a huge learning experience for me to be able to try to force myself to put a lot of my philosophies and approaches into words. Um, So I'm very excited to get that finished when I get over my, you know, occasional bumps in the road of writer's block and whatnot. And yeah, I'd love to keep business coaching and getting a couple more students. As far as what my next step is to do that, well, right now I'm still giving out the course for free. Like I'm not, I'm just kind of sending people the PDF if anybody wants to read it and go through it. It's just the, essentially the script for what's going to be the video course. And I'm not too worried about, you know, keeping them as closely guarded secrets. Cause I feel like the the philosophy isn't the most important part. It's like how you actually execute it and how you actually like put the work in. Yeah. You can lead a horse to water, you know, but you can't make them send three fucking DMs every day. Nope. Which actually would be a fun challenge to teach a horse how to do that. DM. DM, yeah. Yeah, so uh, so I want to finish chapter four. That is my next big obstacle and find more people that want to read through the course and find more people that want to do business coaching with me. So, you know, if you want to really break it down, maybe a good step in that direction would be to go on a music business podcast and talk about my philosophies. It's good.
0: You know? Go for that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I tried to finish the PDF
0: last night and I fell asleep. Uh, Not because of the writing, um, because I was tired. And I think uh, if you're listening and when you hear this, Carl is still giving it out for free, you should check it out. And if not, you should just pay for the course. (laughs) Because it is like... Thank you. It's a really good take. I feel like what you've done, if you want my opinion on a podcast. Yeah. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I feel like you've kind of laid out what everybody thinks they should do, but they won't do, and you've put it down into like an executable thing. You know what I mean? That
1: means a lot. Yeah.
0: I think that's the problem with most people. They know they're supposed to do something, but they don't know how to do it. Well, now there's something that you can use to do it and at minimum make a really cool Spotify playlist, which is the the first part of the uh, Mm -hmm. first part of the thing. But uh, yeah, man, I think I've been enjoying it. I'm going to like do it properly over the next few months. So it's
1: going to be fun. Awesome. Yeah, I I appreciate that. Do
0: you want to tell people where they can find you on the Internet?
1: Yeah, the best place is either my website carlbonner.com, C-A-R-L-B-A-H-N-E-R.com or Instagram slash carlbonner. I'm on there most of the time. And, you know, I respond to DMs. I like having conversations. I like talking to fellow humans that have, you know, interests in the same things that I have interest in. That's probably the main thing. I'm on Facebook kind of by default, but I don't really do anything on it. By accident. Yeah, by accident. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think anybody that enjoys this show I think would enjoy your Instagram. You you drop some good one-liners and and quick tips on there that I think are in line with the people that dig. Oh, thank you. The show. So, but uh, this has been awesome, dude. I definitely uh, I'm going to be bugging you, and we're going to be friends whether you want want to be friends or not. So
1: I absolutely want to. <laughs> so thanks for coming on the show. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. I really, 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 really appreciate it.
0: So that's it for episode 57. Thanks to Carl Bonner for coming on the show. I know he would want me to share with you that since we recorded this episode, he has also started a podcast. It's called Thanks for Thinking. It's like a guided, self-reflective music business podcast. I'm really enjoying it. Y'all should definitely check it out. If you enjoy this show, I think you will enjoy his. There's a link in the show notes, and it's also in all the places that podcasts are. Finally, thanks to all of you for listening today. If you found this episode to be valuable, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or sharing with a friend that you think might enjoy it. And on that note, I will see you next time.